0: This is Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, a podcast and radio program presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. Most any contemporary musical style can trace its roots back to the blues. Explore the blues and its connections with captivating interviews, lively discussions, and news from the world of the blues. your host, Jim Irvin, baby, I'm
1: You know, I, I remember recording the first couple of episodes of Time Signatures with James L. Williams oh, yeah. and with Freddie. Oh, yeah. And James was over here doing the bass licks, just <laughs> like you were doing the guitar <laughs> legs. <laughs> well, you know, 15 years on
2: the road doing Michigan Roads, and I've seen all the Michigan Roads. It's kind of like, you know, when you hear that, it's like, oh, yeah, it just automatically comes back.
1: <laughs> well, And, you know, it's it's kind of ironic because when Dedalian told me to find a song, and I've told this story before, this was the very first song that I, I played, and I went, Wow, 26 seconds, that's a great intro. And I, I called the Dalian, and he goes, Well, if you can get permission from Freddie, we'll go with it. So sure. Freddie's like, Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so oh, it's really yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I want to welcome everybody to Time Signatures. I'm your host, Jim Irvin, and I am really honored today to be uh, recording live from a secret location in the only Eaton Rapids on earth with the one and only. Man, it's it's an honor to have you here. 15 years with the Rude Doctor, mixed flavors, Jackpine Savages, and and Lisa's knocking things over. She's having, <laughs> like I said, we're recording live. Bill Malone, it is so good to have you. Well,
2: thank you for having me. This is an honor. It's a privilege, and I've been looking forward to this for a long time.
1: I have too, because uh, Lisa gave me some heads up on a couple of things that I need to ask you about. And sure. So we're just gonna dive right in here. Uh you you know, obviously you've got a, a ton of experience in the music industry and um in, in the greater Lansing area with blues in, in general. Um, or specifically I should say, that seems to be like that was your your main flavor, correct?
2: Yeah, it was. Um, you know, really, uh when I first come to Lansing and formed my first band, we were doing rock and I wanted a blues band so bad. Mm-hmm. And the guys that were with me, they really didn't want to get into, um, you know, rock and roll. and, But that was my, my background. I mean, I'm, I'm a hippie, born in the 50s and grew up in the 60s and 70s during that era sure. know, in high school. And that's what we played. So that was really my thing in
1: high school, you know, rock and roll. So don't, don't get too far ahead of me. I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to ask you the question and sure. kind of drag you back for just a minute. But what is your earliest memories of music that you can recall?
2: Ooh, well, music has been in my life. You know, my dad was a big jazz fan. So Mm -hmm. we played music all the time. Um, Coltrane, Miles Davis, Mm. uh, Jimmy Smith. That was one of his favorites. As far as I can remember, listening to music from an early, early age. My mother was very uh, into, you know, uh, gospel. And Mahalia Jackson was one of my grandmother. You know, that was her favorite. So I remember those days and her singing and playing all the, you know, early um, Mahalia Jackson songs. Even, you know, when she passed, that was uh, one of her requests was, you know, the upper room. And music has always been a part, you know, and being from Motown. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk more about that, too. (laughs) Yeah, so I remember music as far as I can remember. That's cool.
1: Any favorite songs
2: when you were growing up? Wow. (laughs) Now, that's... That's a toughie because, golly. Well, any
1: of the, any of that po- that pop out in your mind? Any anything that you can remember it was one of your favorite jams when you were a kid or something?
2: Jimi Hendrix, hey Joe. Jimmy <laughs> mean, go. I, I just remember that from golly when I first started playing. But then, you know, the mu- uh, Motown, um, being from Detroit, we, you know, had a a doo-wop band, you know, we did a lot of that during the days, and I was a big dramatic fan and I loved you know, those guys, because they were local. And uh, some of their early records, I Can't Get Over You, you know, was one of mm-hmm. my favorites, you know, uh, Temptations. I mean, there's. It's when you say favorites, it's kind of hard because I I see, like, <laughs> five, six songs right off the top of my head, uh, you know, that uh, I can reflect on. But, okay. uh, yeah, that probably, Hey Joe, was one of the ones that really stuck
1: with me and still does. So, Bill, that first guitar and amp—a gift from your parents. Mm. I've been—I've been looking. I've been—I've mm. been cruising the uh, the the Root Doctor page mm. and stealing little tidbits. Mm. You got to tell me the story, man.
2: Well, 1969, and I'm not dating myself, so <laughs> you guys don't even think about it.
1: It was four years old. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but uh, my uh, my mom and dad went to New York for a vacation, mm-hmm. and my dad brought back. A guitar and a little small amp, so it was a Fender Telecaster, and had this little small amp. had a four inch speaker, cardboard you know type amp. Right, and man, I thought this was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And my cousin, I used to go over his house and play on his guitar. He uh, was a big West Montgomery fan, so he taught me bumping on Sunset by West Montgomery. So I would sit down in the basement with that Telecaster and, and that was the only thing I could play. And I would just go over and over and over and over on that guitar. Um, I just loved it. It was a blonde with a maple <laughs> neck and oh man, I just You still got it? No, but I ha- I have a upgraded. I have a blonde Telecaster. Okay, but all it's right. uh it's uh <laughs> More expensive uh, vintage than the one I had then. Right. I, I kind of wish I had those guitars back then, you know, but I didn't know anything about value and yeah, yeah. You know, vintage and all that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I've heard from some within your circle that you grew up in the Metro Detroit area. Is that yes, correct? Yes. Okay. And during the height of the Motown era, um, mm-hmm. you even had some close ties with some of the greats of the day. Have you got oh, yeah. Any, any fun stories you want to oh, share? Oh,
2: man. So, yeah, I was born and raised in Detroit. Mm-hmm. I spent 43 years there before I moved to Lansing. And uh, my dad was the manager at Palmer Park Golf Course, which is a public golf course in Detroit. So all the Motown stars, entertainers, executives, they all played golf back in the days. And it was um, pretty much, you know, a black-owned golf course. Well, it was the public city of Detroit, so... At that time, there was only a couple of golf courses that blacks were allowed to play on. Uh, We had Detroit Country Club, but blacks at that time weren't allowed in the country club.
1: And this is when?
2: Oh, we're talking 60s, 70s. And still had the segregated? Oh, yeah. yeah. The only only blacks were allowed in there were workers. And they all would come and they loved my dad. I mean, my dad was idolized because... My dad was a Harlem Globetrotter, original Harlem Globetrotter. So he was kind of famous, you know, in the circle. So they all knew him.
1: So he was in with the Meadowlark Lemon Group? Oh, no, before that. Before that? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Him and my uncle, Augustus Finney, uh, they started in, you know, Parks and Recreation, you know, way back in the (laughs) 30s. And so all these guys knew my dad. And so when they would come, he would let them go out and play golf. So they just loved him. And I got to, you know be friends with them, and I would I would work there. So, like, when Smokey would come in, I, his wife would come, I'd get a cart and take his wife out there, and, you know, they would gamble and play golf, and they'd come back and slip me a 50, you know, for just doing that. <laughs> so that was my little hustle. But I got to, you know, hang out with a lot of those guys and, and become friends with all the Motown stars, uh, uh, you know, Smokey and... Oh, man, everybody, all the Temptations. Um, uh, Barry Gordy, you know, was, was good friends. Uh, so we were, you know, we were pretty good, you know, uh, during those days. It was it was fun to be. My dad didn't want me hanging around because I was, you know, young teenager. And he didn't want to be influenced by these guys because they were gambling <laughs> and drinking and, yeah. you know, smoking out there. You know, he said that was a bad influence. You got to remember, this is uh, early 70s. Um, the guy was just getting ready to start high school. So mm. he didn't want those bad influences to rub off on of me. Cause you know, you see the stars on one side and on behind the stage. They're totally different. You know, when they're all yeah. they're they're just camera. normal people, like just the nor- rest of it, yeah. normal people, but they were very nice and very friendly at the time. I wasn't 18. So I couldn't get into the clubs back then. Um, you know the Grandy Ballroom and all that, where they played. Uh, but we would stand outside and mm. we could hear the music, you know, from those guys. <laughs> Calling jamming. you? Oh gosh, <laughs> you know, just, I couldn't wait till I got eighteen so I can go inside and you know see them.
1: Now, tell me about the first time you heard the blues, and what was your biggest influence or influences as you as you grew up? Golly,
2: well, because I, I you know, born in Detroit, I was right. a Motown guy, so all the R&B, that was me. But my sister loved blues, and they would go to, um, it was uh, Henry's Cocktail Lounge in Detroit. So B.B. King seemed like they would come in there once a month. Mm -hmm. Uh, B.B. King, Otis Rush, uh, all these got Little Milton and uh, Tyrone Davis. You know, all these guys would, would come in, like, once a month, and this this was, like, huge, and they would go, and, you know, I wasn't really into the blues then, because it's like, oh, yeah, this old, same old, somebody died, and, you know, <laughs> blah, 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 this, you know, I was into the R&B, you know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the doo-wop era, but I remember, you know, we played it, I lived with my sister, and we played blues all night long, and my dad had these records, and I didn't realize, so he had the original 78s. Hmm. So... B.B. King's Sweet 16, I remember, so I got a hold of that, and when I started playing guitar, I would play these 78s, and I learned Sweet 16, oh, man, I thought that was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and I would just play it over, and I got that lick down, I mastered it, and I started developing a, a liking for the blues, and, you know, as time would go on, you know, I'd pick through my sister's albums and records and pick her brain, and Start learning about more and more blues artists. But in the earlier days, like I said, I wasn't 18, and at that time you had to be 18 to get into the bars and, and drink liquor and all that. Um, I was 17, so I couldn't get in, and I didn't have the chance to see all these great uh, blues artists. Um, so I kind of missed out you know, on the early blues, but I, I started developing more of an interest in blues and learning more about blues, and all the various different artists due to, you know, my sister, you know, going to all these shows.
1: So, Absolutely. Yeah. And we're, we're going to talk more about BB King too. There, I, I mm-hmm. hear you've got a pretty stellar story. <laughs> I don't know if it'll be on this episode or the next one, but you're here for two. Um, but I, I, I have to ask you, uh, because you, you did, uh, as I read, you were completely self-taught. Yes. Talk yes. about that. It was, it, was it always just fun or, I mean, talk about some of the, some of that journey.
2: Well, yeah. Um, Starting high school, you know, in the 70s, it was all about bands. I mean, you had to be in the – if you're going to be cool, you're going to be in a band. If you were in a band, you're going to be cool. (laughs) You know, you're going to get chicks and, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah. So we would sit outside, and I had a a friend uh, that that played guitar, and, you know, he would teach me. And and actually, um, really, the first person that taught me how to play real guitar was – a gentleman by the name of Dennis Whedon and he was uh, Glenn Brown's guitar player and this was early seven like 70 71 and funny story so when we start recording you know up here and I met Glenn and he brought out these old pictures and I said wait a minute that's that's weed he said yeah that was my guitar player and he showed me these pictures I said this is the guy that taught me how to play he was a master at Hendrix, so he taught me all the Hendrix licks and the chords and all that, and um, he worked for my dad, you know, for Parks and Recreation um, at the golf course, and then in the wintertime, they worked at the skating rink. So those were, like, some of the early times that I was self-taught. You know, he showed me some things, and then later, I took formal lessons. My mom would take me to uh, Wonderland Music, and <laughs> my teacher... Um, was earl clue oh wow so i was 15 and earl was 17 and i took formal lessons from him so i learned how to kind of read you know uh, music and you know, formally but you know everything else was pretty much self-taught it was a it was an experience and i i actually was at a function oh some 30 years later and earl was there and we sat at the table together and You know, reminisced and he remembered, you know, I'm like, do you remember? He said, yeah, I was a kid. I said, yeah, and I was three years younger than you. (laughs) (laughs) I said, boy, if I had just stuck with it, you know, look, maybe I could have been somebody. (laughs) I think you've done pretty good, man. Yeah,
1: I can't (laughs) complain. So you've shared the stage with the likes of Larry McRae, um, Coco Montoya, Benoit. Yes. Go back in your mind, are there any that you wished you could have opened for or shared the stage with?
2: Sure, you always wanna share the stage with some of the A-listers. I mean, I was pretty fortunate and blessed to play with those guys. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably, you know, like Clapton or somebody like that would have been an honor or a privilege. Uh, uh, But, you know, I I guess I never was at that opportune time or, you know, to be able to do that. Uh, We just were, blessed that these guys, you know, like um, Larry and those guys were local around and would come down and play down here. So we had a chance to, you know, play with those guys.
1: Well, and it's kind of cool because I know when, when Larry came to town to do the fundraiser for the Ukrainian children Mm -hmm. um, earlier in the year. You were there, and I was so upset because I had to go home and go to go to bed to get to work in the morning. Oh. And you were up on stage, oh, and the yeah. only reason I know that is because somebody got pictures of you up there <laughs> with Larry. Yeah. And I know they had to be a blast, oh, it you know, because oh. Larry's just a good guy. Look,
2: you know, I mean, I've known Larry 30 years, um, yeah. and it's always a pleasure, you know, to play with him. You know, I've, I've learned a lot from him. Um, like I said, he's just a nice guy and one of the, the best musicians out there so it's always fun and it's very easy and calming to play with him there's no stress and let you do your thing and you know you sit back there and watch him and it's just very enjoyable so i really enjoy that you know he's one of those artists that doesn't have an ego you know i mean he's so good yeah and he's so humble yes and that's what why a lot of people appreciate him you know and i do you know also um when they would the old um out there on uh, Round Lake Road, the old jambalayas. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. And they would play out there, and you know, I'd come in, and he'd always want me to get up and play. And I'm like, nah, I just want to come out. Oh, come on, man. You know, anytime I'm out here stage. I'm on stage, you make sure you come on up here and play with me. I said, so, okay, you know, I appreciate this. I just enjoy sitting out there listening to you and, and you know, learning. You know, as, as as a musician, you're never too old to learn. And I hear this from a lot of the even the big boys, the A-listers, you know, when they go out and see their, you know, fellow comrades, you know, they um, always pick up something new. And, and I used to read that, you know, like, Hendrix would go out to these shows and he'd sit in the front row and he'd have a little pad and he'd write down stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that guy, he watched watch Buddy Guy and, he would, you know, like, take a lot of his little tricks and tips from him. And, and that's what we do. I mean, we always try to better ourselves, you know. We look at our fellow musicians and try to pick up tips and, you know, tricks to... Help our craft.
1: Time wise, uh, you mentioned Buddy Guy, and we just went to see Buddy. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, it was a bucket list thing for yeah. me. Um, but what an honor and a privilege to go! And we were twenty feet off the stage, my friend. We mm-hmm. were sitting from here to your refrigerator away, <laughs> watching this man play, and oh, yeah. and he was good. I mean, you you can tell he's slowing down. He's 86 eighty six now. Yeah, so you 80. know. <clears throat> I mean, he's entitled. Sure. You know, but he still put on one hell of a show. I mean, you figure somebody has been doing
2: this over 60 years, mm-hmm. 70, 70 years, you know. Um, well, you know, you're bound to slow down. Yeah. You know, all the great, you know, blues artists that he played with and the shows on the road. I remember you um, were saying like they used to do. 300 shows a year.
1: That's crazy. I can't even imagine. I,
2: no, I can't either. I can't even imagine. That's you're pretty much playing every night, you know, just about, yeah, throughout the year, and you're traveling. And then they travel on a bus, mm. so you're going across country, you know. And even when you fly
1: over overseas, I mean, that,
2: that takes a toll on you after so many years.
1: Oh, I can imagine, yeah. And I mean, yeah, he. He still, he went out in a crowd, and oh, yeah. I walked over to the walkway when he was coming back, and he was, yeah. he was like from media to away, and he sat there and just started jamming in front of me for like 10 <laughs> seconds. I'm like, oh, dude, this is so cool, you I know? know. Yeah. And I'm snapping pictures with my cell phone, because that's all they let us have. Right, I know. Which killed me as a photographer, because I would have been happy as all get out to take pictures of that concert and send them to him and his people and, sure. and say, hey, here, sure. share them, do what you want.
2: Yeah, I get it, but yeah. You
1: know. You it know. was it was such a cool thing, sure. and, it, and it truly was a a bucket list um, opportunity for me. Oh yeah. Oh, so, yeah. if you ever get a chance before Buddy retires completely, go see him. Well worth it. Definitely. Um, and if you don't, I have a feeling he's going to be one of those guys that retires, kind of like Freddie. Yeah. You know, and then you see him pop up here and there. Well,
2: you know? the, the cool thing about it, you know, we go to Chicago a lot. Yeah. You know, I and mean, Lisa, and uh, we all, every time we go, we go to his club. So I, you know, I played at Legends. For. and um we happened to be the last time we went i think last year and we were just sitting there and all of a sudden you know mc walked up and stopped the you know the band leader and said hey whispered in his ear and all of a sudden the band kicks up and buddy walks up on the stage and we're sitting right there at this corner of the stage and I'm like oh man buddy guy you know he's there live so we see yeah. him live in his club which is great yeah. you know um you know, that was an honor right there to see him, you know, like recently, you know, uh, before he retires, you know. Yeah. And oh, yeah. He, and he still, he, like you said, he slowed down. He talks more. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, but he but he still played golf. he still lot. plays. You yeah. Know. He'll throw those licks out there. And, and, and,
1: and <clears throat> the cool thing that he did, and this goes back to your days of living in Detroit, um, he he talked about when Blues first came out, it didn't break out in the US. It broke out in Europe. Europe. Yeah. Because the US was so hung up on color, they didn't want to hear it. No. And that's where Hendrix caught his break, and that's mm-hmm. where some of the other big names caught mm-hmm. their break was over in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, what a what a sad testimony on our on our society of that day. Yeah, it's 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 you know, it's kinda
2: I mean it's a lot better, but the Europeans, they had a different perspective on Music, you know, they didn't look at color and and not saying that, you know, racism is all over the world, but they had a different uh, perspective on music. And if you're good, they didn't care. Yeah. Black, blue, yellow, green, you know, they were there for the music and they
1: supported it. Where, so uh, so much so that uh, he told the story that Mick Jagger was invited to play in the United States. Mm-hmm. He said, "As long as I can bring Hendrix with me, sure. Yeah. If not, okay. no, I won't. Yeah. I won't come. Yeah.
2: And that was the only reason why he really came back, uh, because they, you know, they just wouldn't support him in in the early days, and it it hurt. And I understand that it, you know, you're from here, you're in your own home, you know, New York, you know, like I said, where he's from, and yeah. They just did not support him. And, like, man, you're doing everything. You're pulling out everything but the kitchen sink, and the people just wouldn't support you. So you have to leave the country to go where they supported you. And and the blues artists did the same thing. I mean, they would bring them over they'd pay them. Even today, they still bring these guys over to Europe, and they do these massive shows, and that's the only way that they can actually make a decent living is out of the country. And that's that, that's sad, you know.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I was just going to say that I've noticed that they do a lot of out-of-country blues events. Right. Um, I think Thornetta and John Primer just came back. They were in yeah. uh, Sweden, that was it? Yeah, yeah. At a, at a big event in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, and that was right after the Blues
2: Awards. Well, Cherie Williams, you know, they're over there right now. You know, it's like, wow, they can't get this, these kind of shows here in America, but they can go across the pond and kill them. Isn't that crazy? I know it is. You know, that it's, is, it's sad. That's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> and all the music originated from here. From
1: here, yeah. know <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I, I can't figure it out.
1: And almost every genre of music has been affected. Yes, and yes. and has been molded yes. in its in its infancy by the blues. All the blues, you know, all the rock artists. Every song you listen
2: to is a blues. Of the the hits were originally blues song written by the blues legends, and they become multimillionaires off of these songs where the original artists, the writers
1: couldn't get a dime off, you know, that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Yeah. We've got so much more to talk about here. We've got a couple of minutes left. Um, I, and I want to talk to you about the Root Doctor band, but I think we're going to wait till the next episode because there's so much there. Oh, man, I got stories. <laughs> good,
2: good stories. Well, oh, yeah, good yeah, stories. yeah.
1: You know, and that's the thing about the Root Doctor band. I don't think I've ever, 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 and I'm, I'm being straight here, mm-hmm. never heard a negative word about oh. any member of that band, up, up to and including Freddie. Trust
2: me, I wouldn't be where I'm at right now if it wasn't for Root Doctor. So I, you know, I pay homage to those guys. I tip my hat, you know, I'm so thankful for them giving me the opportunity to, you know, express my craft, you know, with them. And man, we we traveled all the Michigan roads.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and as a matter of fact, I think we're going to hear that uh, that song here in just a minute. But it, again, my guest is uh, Bill Malone. And uh, Bill, it's it's an honor to have you with me. Uh, we are going to uh, definitely have a second conversation uh, A second helping, if you will. Oh, please. And uh, there's so much more to talk about. So do me a favor, everybody. (laughs) Tune in. We are going to be from that secret location (laughs) in the only Eaton Rapids on Earth. And we will be back. This has been
0: Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. For more information on cabs, visit capitalareablues.org. We appreciate you joining us today. And we welcome your comments about the show by emailing time Signatures at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Cabs Time Signatures. Until next time, keep the blues alive. Keep connected with LCC Connect at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.
3: We don't want to take your picture. We want to give it to you for free. LCC's President's Office
1: in the Photography Department presents Help Portrait. Get a professional headshot or family photo Saturday, December 2nd, in the Gannon Commons on LCC's downtown campus. Learn more and register at lcc.edu and search Portrait.
3: By utilizing interactive activities, the Youth Summer Camp at LCC gives kids in grades two through 12 the chance to explore science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. Scholarship opportunities are available. Details can be found at lcc.edu slash serious fun. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is
4: Melissa Ford Luckin.
3: Rosalie Petroski. Susan Seraph, and Jess.
4: Editors for the Washington Square Review.
3: Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect Unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our Audio Town Square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from around the world to Lansing. To
4: Lansing. Hi, this is Melissa Ford Luckin, editor for the Washington Square Review. I'm here today with Kayla Brandstetter one of the authors for our most recent issue. And we're here to talk about her piece, 10 Lessons and whatever else we come up with today. So thank you for joining us today, Kayla.
5: Thank you for inviting me. Sure thing. Can you tell us a little bit about your piece? So 10 Lessons, I wrote, I believe about a year ago, and it was a year out from my transition from working in public high school. I taught grades 9 12 And then I transitioned into higher education and it was just kind of like this reflection of all the lessons I had learned as a public school teacher. Some were comedic. I think um, if you've read the piece, there were some comedic areas and then some were a tad bit more serious and heart wrenching. And all of this led into my decision to leave public education and my transition into higher education and, um, just the lack of administrative support, COVID, mental illness. Um, I think there's this misperception that education is family-friendly and it's not. And I have two young daughters and I wanted to be more available to my own children. And so that was just kind of like the idea behind my essay, 10 Lessons, which just kind of digesting these 10 years that I spent in public education and wanting to remember those funny moments, but at the same time, just these moments that were just unbelievably challenging um, as an educator.
4: One of the things that I really appreciated about the piece was it gives kind of a, you know, a backside view of, of teaching because mm-hmm. we know a lot about, you know, what goes on in the classroom as a student, but not a lot of people are teachers, and so they don't get that backside view. I'm intrigued by what you just said about um, education and K-12 not being family friendly. Can you talk a little bit more about that just so that people that have never had this backside view can get an idea of what that means?
5: Absolutely, I, I entered education because of the flexibility that I thought that the field would offer because I wanted to be a mom. So I would start in August, end in May, but in the summer times, yes, I'm not physically going into work, but I'm redoing curriculum, sometimes redoing my classroom, depending on what the administration and what the next... I hate using the term trend, but sometimes administrators will attend a conference and they will decide, hey, we're going to scrap this curriculum and now I need you to rewrite. And so over the summer, it's just a lot of like rewriting curriculum. So you have like your set days, you have your personal and your sick days. And I felt like, so your contract time, I was set for like 745 in the morning to like three thirty. But that's actual teaching. That doesn't include the fact that I'm an English teacher and I still need to lesson plan. I still need to grade these papers. So I would go home and spend hours and hours of just grading and getting ready for the next day. And then when I did have children... I would have like anxiety attacks trying to call into work whenever my children were sick or even when I was sick because it was just easier going into work than creating sub plans. And so there were days in my last year of teaching that um, I had my daughter's grandmothers take them to the pediatrician and I'm talking to the pediatrician through the phone because there wasn't a sub for that day. And so I couldn't be available to my own children uh, when they were sick. I will be completely honest, and I don't think a lot of educators would admit this. I became resentful for, to the phrase, well, you need to do it for the students. And I would try to go above and beyond for my students every fall semester. When we ended the semester, I would do like Polar Express hot chocolate for my students. We would do fun food days. I would try to do fun activities. And it was like I was giving so much to my students that there wasn't a lot left for my own children. And I just felt like it's not family-friendly in that regard. It's not family-friendly when you are a young teacher trying to have children. The maternity leave um, is not conducive to young teachers. I don't know how it is in Michigan. Um, I had the days when I had my first daughter, so I wasn't, in my opinion, I felt like penalized for having a child. But my second daughter, I had her in August. I went 10 days above my sick days because I didn't have the days and I owed the district money. So for like a month, they were taking anywhere from like two to $400 out of my check per month to pay them back for going over my days. <laughs> wow.
4: <laughs> so this is a lot when I think about the experiences that you wrote in the 10 lessons, what you went through with the students. So what mm-hmm. you're talking about is your own emotional hard times, exhaustion, frustration, and then you what you saw students going through at the same time. And then I start to think about, so you're in teaching now at college level. Mm-hmm. What carried over and what didn't carry over? Because I know that in all school systems, students have a lot of struggles, the ones that very ones that you described. And... College students also have struggles, so how does that show Mm -hmm. up in the classroom, and, and how is it different for you?
5: Some of these traumas and issues that students face have carried over. I work at a community college, and I know you work for a community college, so I feel like when you work at a community college, like some of the type of students we engage with can be completely different than a university student. So I work in a rural area. I have a high percentage of um, students that are first-generation students. So learning that like what college life is getting them ready many of them there they are the first student to go to college out of their family and there definitely needs to have that guidance between like helping our students work through and navigate okay you may need to sacrifice time with your family to study for your final and read your paper or to write your paper and sometimes families don't always understand that sacrifice so just being supportive helping build that support system for these students that are first generation is I don't wanna say new, but that has been a transition. Students who, um, because I mentioned this in my essay, who have been sexually assaulted, domestic violence, extreme poverty, that really hasn't changed. I will say what has changed from that transition of dealing with students with these traumatic backgrounds, I feel like I have more support in the higher education level than I ever did in the public school system. Um, I was a mandated reporter in nine twelve, and so, the Family Division Services or CPS in certain states, the Child Protective Services, um, it's just frustrating because as a mandated reporter, you must report um, suspected abuse and negligence. Uh, Whether there's any proof of it or not, you still need to report it. And every time that I would do a DFS report, it would always come back inconclusive, and that's frustrating. Um, And sometimes when I would report cases, we're dealing with like sexual assault cases, attempted suicide, and it would always come back inconclusive. So I just felt like my hands were tied in a broken system with finite resources that when I encounter those same issues in the higher ed, um, I've had students with attempted suicide or mental health crisis. This past semester, I've had domestic violence. I just feel like I have more resources We have a pantry. We have access to mental health counselors. We have access to um, shelters to get our students suffering from domestic violence out of that situation. The student that I had this past spring, her advisor is just phenomenal. She was in a domestic violence situation, and the advisor found a $1,500 grant to where she could financially leave. And that just, just makes me happy that I can visually see something being done when students are, un, you know, going through these traumas. And that's something that I didn't necessarily get to witness in the 912. Uh, and that breaks your heart. Cause you're like, these people, these students need help and there's no help.
4: That, yeah. I, that's completely understandable that when you know there's a need there, that as a nurturing person that cares about people, you, you want to get them connected with something that can help them move forward. Yeah. Yeah. That's very emotionally draining for you as an educator. But I can hear what you're saying about having the resources there and being able to use them. There's also another complication where you don't always know what's going on with the students. So when you have the resources, you can just let all the students know that they're there and then they can access Mm -hmm. them even just on their own.
5: Yes. And even at the higher ed level, we have what's called Crowder Cares. And even if a student feels like they are in their own mental health crisis, that they, they know they need help, they can report themselves. And it's anonymous. They can take care of their mental health and within their own privacy. We're not notifying a principal. We're not notifying a counselor. We're not notifying parents. They can take care of that in the privacy of their own time. And um, and that's something that I I didn't have that option when I was working in 912 that if a student was undergoing some form of a mental health crisis, it's DFS, it's the counselors, you're contacting the parents, it's just a whole team of people are involved. Sometimes it works out, and sometimes that support is only there for a day, and then the student is on their own after that.
4: Well, thanks for sharing all that. That really can be helpful to people that, like I said, don't have that backside view of what it's like to be a teacher in the k-12 or in in the college setting it's a lot to think about i want to shift gears a little bit uh you let me know that you've done a ted talk recently which sounds really exciting and maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and i kind of get the sense that some of the experiences that you had while teaching kind of blended into the ted talk so just tell us what that was like and how that came about
5: Yes, um, I'm in the process of writing a book. My book is near completion. And my book, I interviewed 26 women from across the country about their reproductive decisions. And I know that sounds controversial. um, But we are expanding more than the Roe v. Wade conversation. It's teen pregnancy, it's miscarriages, it's women who are choosing not to be mothers and the stigma behind that decision. Women who chose to adopt, women who froze their eggs, IVF, surrogacy, just I did a comprehensive examination of women in general. Because I know with my own experience with miscarriages, with maternity leave, we need to have a deeper conversation when it comes to women in this country. Um, I didn't realize how frequent a miscarriage was until I had a miscarriage and was open about it. I didn't understand the complications with maternity leave or parental leave in general until I went on maternity leave and just the injustice behind some of those issues. And coupled with my mom had me at 16, and part of my TED Talk, I mentioned sexual assault and the statement that I made of, Don't say it's not your fault that you got sexually assaulted, but it kind of is because you put yourself in that position that came from um, a former student who I reported her sexual assault. And that was a statement that was said to her. And just like, we need to support our victims and not victim shame because no means no, regardless of what you think the situation was. So all of these experiences, yes, led to my decision to, to write my book about, about women in hopes to open this dialogue of having a comprehensive discussion about women and the choices that they have or don't have. And so I'm, almost finished. I need to build my platform to get an agent and to help get it published. And a local TED Talk came. And I waited till the last two hours of the deadline because I thought there's no way they're going to select me for a TED Talk. And on my website, I have my blog post. I looked at My previous writings, I looked at my prologue to my book, and I thought, oh, I may have something. The theme was connectedness. So I haphazardly wrote a rough outline. They needed an audition video. So I read two, three minutes from the idea I had and then I submitted it and I think I had two hours to spare. (laughs) (laughs) I waited to the absolute last minute because I thought there is no way, no way that they're going to select me. And about a week later, I received an email that they liked my idea. And so I gave the TED Talk at Missouri Southern State University on May 4th. And I practice nonstop for, I don't know, like six straight weeks. Um, I think the advantage of working in higher education is you can also pull your students. So as like some of my students were writing their eight to 10-page research paper for me, I'd like pull them out of the library. I'm like, hey, can you listen to my talk? And <laughs> they did, and they I was so appreciative. And I had a nice um, like little fan club on the day of. Many people from my college, my students came and saw me talk. And being connected with other professionals from literally across the country who were also speaking was just, I want to remember that experience because we waited in like what's called a green room. We weren't allowed to interact with the audience, but we were able to just converse amongst each other. And everybody was passionate about education. Everybody was passionate about mental health awareness, women's issues. And it was just... I can't describe just how rewarding it was to be among these professionals who share the same vision that I do, and we were passionate about advocating for change. And yes, just like my own personal experience and my experience as an educator influenced my TED talk, which is "Don't Be an Athena," and I tied in the Medusa legend into just advocating empathy and change for people.
4: Talk a little bit more about that that mythology that you used as a metaphor or how to have these conversations and how not to have the conversations.
5: Yeah, I used, um, I didn't know much about the story of Medusa. I think growing up, I had some interest in mythology. All I knew about Medusa was she was a monster or Gorgon who turned men into stone. She had snakes for hair. And that's about the gist of it. Last summer, I chose to write a blog post and I, titled it Don't Be an Athena and I was just researching I think ancient mythology and folklore to like bridge that gap between ancient times and today about how little has changed and when I looked into Medusa's story a little more I did not realize that one she has multiple origins of how she became Medusa but the two that I chose for my speech and my blog The first one, she vowed to remain a celibate priestess to the goddess Athena, and she was described as beautiful, and she fell in love with Poseidon, and their relationship caused jealousy with Athena, which transformed her into the Gorgon and the monster that we recognize her today. And then the second story came from, I think there was a few centuries between the two origin stories, but it was the Roman take, the Roman poet Ovid. In his book Metamorphosis 100% blames Athena because Poseidon violates or sexually assaults Medusa in Athena's holy temple and since Athena can't really do anything to Poseidon because he is her equal she takes out that rage onto Medusa and then Medusa becomes this monster who because she didn't receive the support she creates more victims And so I just use that as a story about our words and actions carry a lot of weight. And when someone endures a traumatic experience, whether it's rape, depression, anxiety, anything that's causing significant amount of trauma, we have the opportunity to either create a Medusa to where this individual is going to continue living into their trauma, creating more victims Or we have an opportunity to kind of empower that individual into being a survivor and they can go on with their life. And that's how I used it because that's still true today. I have seen the generational curse of abuse from families to families. And if they don't break that abuse cycle, that generational poverty and domestic violence, well, then that young five, six, seven year old child is going to turn into an adult that's going to create more victims later on because that cycle is not being broken.
4: That ties in so well with what we were talking about earlier with having resources available for people that need them. And then you're all 100%. Yep. And you're also adding another layer on top of it, which is being brave enough to have the conversation. And when people are brave enough to have the conversation, listening is important. And uh, what that's one of the things I liked about your TED Talk was that you're giving people suggestions about how they can be a listener and how they can support rather than basically shut the person off and cut them away from the conversation and cut them away from resources. And I think that's what you're saying, what happened to Medusa.
5: Yeah, 100%. And I think sometimes when an individual is, when they suffer something traumatic, like When I had my miscarriage, I'm the only woman in my family that I'm aware of as far as like my grandmothers and my mother to have a miscarriage and suffer infertility. People didn't know how to approach me. And in all fairness, when I had my miscarriage, I took a week off and I came back to work. And when I returned to work, it's like I I pushed it out. I just returned to work and I had a male coworker approach me like a year or two after. And he goes, we didn't know how to approach you because you acted like nothing happened. And I said, because working was my escape. And I think when something like a miscarriage happens, sometimes we don't know how to react to that woman. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't need to do anything outside of just have that shoulder and let her cry. That's all you need her to do.
4: You had a student that wrote you a letter, right? About your miscarriage. Yeah,
5: I did. Yeah, yeah, he... He wrote me a letter, and um, at the end of the school year, and it was one of those students. I don't want to say he was challenging, but when I returned back from my leave after having my miscarriage, he approached me and he's like, "Where were you? Vacation?" And that sounds horrible, but I needed that. I needed that normalcy. And so that student ended up calling me mom for the rest of the high school experience. And then he he waited to the last the last day of school to hand me this letter that basically was I didn't realize as teachers we think we're just teaching them the content and that I was teaching them writing and reading but I didn't realize how much of my personal life also was teaching them and I lost my baby I came back to work and I still have his letter even though it's happened several years ago I think like seven years ago I still have his letter and he said that I taught him you know to kind of push forward when bad things happen.
4: I think that's true what you said about teaching more than just the content and I'm an English teacher and you're an English teacher so maybe Mm -hmm. we both just think that being English teachers makes that more persistent more prevalent when you're talking to students because you're reading a lot of their personal writing so you get 100%. you get glimpses into their life and it's just natural to want to offer glimpses into your life at, at some time so that it feels a little more balanced
5: yes yeah yes
4: what other nonfiction projects do you have going in addition to the the book
5: I've taken the essay 10 lessons and I'm considering like my second book to be kind of like my memories of being a teacher. I want to take 10 lessons and I want to expand on it. And so my first essay I wrote was called Hills, Coffee, and Pins. And it was about like my first year of teaching and all of the mistakes I made and like second guessing myself. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to get me fired. (laughs) And um, I'm trying to write it using a little bit of humor, kind of a David Sedaris style and I recently finished my second essay for that book, and it's called Grammar, Sex, and Literature. And I think I mentioned it in this with 10 Lessons, where I, my second year of teaching, a condom was found in a grammar book. And I tried to be discreet about it, but it, that did not happen. <laughs> I had a student like find, I just didn't find a condom in a grammar book, and I tried to discreetly remove the book from her desk before either one of us could be too embarrassed when another student in front of her turned around and like just announced to the class like is this a condom and so (laughs) I basically was like okay I'm gonna have to find a way to transition and I basically said I'm like tell your health teachers that I covered sex ed today and let's move on and we did and so I'm just kind of talking about all of these issues in the classroom that the classroom management in your college classes will not prepare you for uh, such as finding contraceptives in your classroom (laughs) But I made that into a deeper conversation on how, like, that district, we really don't talk about sex education, like, at all. Like, we don't have that class at all. And then I led that essay into, like, how comical it was to find a condom in my classroom. And then I led it into a deeper conversation about teen pregnancy, sexual assault, and um, just, like, issues facing a lot of rural teenage girls that they don't have a lot of support because... We're not talking about how to protect them. So that's how kind of my, what, that's what I'm working on right now is just doing a humorous collection of my memories as a teacher, expanding on 10 lessons. But even though they're humorous, I want to expand on um, deeper issues facing our school systems. I
4: think that sounds great. I taught high school before I taught college. And I think that there's a lot to be gained by teaching in a different setting before moving to the college setting. Like nothing will surprise you. <laughs> yeah, nothing will <laughs> surprise you, and you've already no. been—you've em- already been embarrassed. Terrible things have already happened. And, and you
5: oh, know. I had a student last semester, this past spring, that told me the reason why he didn't get an assignment turned in was because he was too hungover over the weekend. And I was like, "You do you, just please get your paper turned in." <laughs> right?
4: <laughs> are you working on any other projects, like a fiction project or blog posts? What are the kind of th- things?
5: I have a couple of blog post ideas, but my main objective for this summer is just to get my book completed. Um, I'm optimistic. I think I have an independent publisher in Iowa interested in my manuscript once it's finished. So that's been my main priority is just trying to build my brand, expand my network, and and get my book published. Because I'm passionate about my book, obviously. I wouldn't be writing about all these different decisions that women can or can make or ha- didn't have the opportunity to make. And, um, and I'm excited because I, I do want to advocate for all women. I wanted every single woman to see themselves in my book. I interviewed women from rural areas, urban areas, suburban areas, women quite educated, women in poverty, Black Americans, Hispanic, LGBTQ, Asian, uh, Native American. I I mean, I really branched out and um, I'm on year two because of all the research and the interviewing that I've had to do. So I can see the light at the end of the tunnel and I'm getting excited about that, so. um, That's
4: wonderful. It's a beautiful project.
5: Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I'm ready for it to be, and I'm ready to see the book form. And I'm still a little ways from that, but I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I have six more chapters.
4: All right. Wonderful. Hope that you get to make good use of your summertime. If people want to follow you and stay in touch, where can they find you online?
5: You can find me on my website, KaylaBranstetter.com. I do have a subscription uh, link. Just put in your email and it will subscribe. Um, I haven't been as frequent with my blog posts. I taught 21 credit hours last spring, plus I have an eight-year-old and a three-year-old and writing a book. So um, I'm planning on dropping a blog post probably in the next couple weeks. And I have my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And that TED Talk, which uh, You can which find helped. me on YouTube on TED Talk. Oh,
4: yeah, okay. I'll be sure to include all of those in the show notes so that people can find you easily. Thanks a lot for spending time with us today. We look forward to reading your book.
5: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
4: Thank you for listening to our talented poets and authors.
3: Until next time, this has been Washington Square On Air where we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's Literary Journal, The Washington Square Review, a publication featuring writers from the Great Lakes State, across the nation, and around the world. To find out more about The Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed sharing.
0: This has been a presentation of LCC Connect a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ Studio, located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.